Hello and welcome, one and all, to the Global in the Granite State, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Thank you so much for your interest in these in-depth conversations about critical issues. If you have listened before, thank you for coming back and continuing to engage in global understanding. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining, and we hope you will find great value in these discussions. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and your host for this program. The World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that is dedicated to promoting a deep, nonpartisan understanding of world affairs through programs and initiatives that meaningfully educate and engage a diverse audience centered in New Hampshire. We cannot accomplish this important mission without the great support of our members, donors, and sponsors. If you enjoy this program, we hope you will consider donating to the cause or becoming a member. You can find a link to donate in the episode description. I would like to take a quick moment to thank our podcast sponsors, McLean Middleton. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at mclean.com. We want to thank them for supporting our community conversations like this and the overall work of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Okay, let's dive in to the conversation for today. If you find it difficult to unpack what is going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan, you are not alone. This decades-long conflict has been brewing under the surface of global affairs, exploding spectacularly every couple of years, drawing world attention before receding into the background again. When national news media covers the latest outbreak, like a few months ago, we hear about what is happening today, but have little to no insights into why this conflict continues to confound the world. With this in mind, we spoke with Mary Glantz, a former U.S. Foreign Service officer and current senior advisor for Russia and Europe Center at the United States Institute of Peace. To better understand the basis of this conflict and to think about what stands in the way of resolving the tensions between these post-Soviet states. I do have to admit that this history has me a little bit confused just because it's so incorporated into other histories and because of the fraughtness of the relationship, there's also a lot of misinformation out there too. So it's really hard to find, I hesitate to use the term objective history because historians will tell you there's no such thing as purely objective history. It's all based upon who tells it. But so much of this history is written about the other in a negative way it's in distorted that it's hard to tell what's really true about each of these people's history. So it's not as simple a history as you have in say Europe where you have state borders and you've studied a lot of where those state borders come from. Since both of these peoples were really incorporated into other empires for much of their history, it's not as clear cut and as easy to delineate. Realizing that, 
Here is my best attempt at some key insights into the early histories of these people. First, Armenia is considered one of the oldest European civilizations, which was one of the first kingdoms to adopt Christianity as its official religion. At its height, this kingdom spread across parts of modern-day Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. Subject to many foreign invasions, the Armenians were conquered in the 14th century by the Ottoman Empire. This started a long history of occupation that lasted until the 1990s and the collapse of the Soviet Union. One major point to understand is that the Armenian people suffered several genocides and mass deportations under Ottoman rule, which the U.S. finally recognized in 2021. As for Azerbaijan, it is a bit murkier. This area has been dominated by many different people, cultures, religions, and ethnic groups over the centuries, so it is hard to pin down the exact background of the Azeri state. Having been ruled by these various groups over the years, it comes down to three theories of the origin of the people of Azerbaijan. The three main theories are that these people are either Turkic, based on their similarities of the language, that they are Iranian, based on culture and religious ties, or that they are Caucasians who were assimilated into these various cultures. Each of these theories seems to be promoted by the neighboring nations and whoever they most identify with. Based on this information, the key point being that this is a region that has been shaped by invasion after invasion and has been a playing field for stronger neighbors to impose their own will on these people. Having a shared history like this could lead to a desire for stable cross-border relations, but it seems the differences between the two countries and cultures has proven to be too much. I think the religion is a big difference. Armenians are Christian. Azeris are Muslim. They're Shiite Muslim, like Iranians. They speak different languages. Azerbaijani is a Turkic language, and they have a very close relationship with Turkey. And as you probably know, Armenia does not. Armenia experienced a genocide and other historic conflicts with Turkey. And so there's a lot of hostility in that region. There's a lot of historical wrongs and historical grievances that those two peoples feel about each other. Adding to the set of grievances, their time under the Soviet Union seemed to continue to pit one side against the other, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Initially, the Bolsheviks, I believe, put it with Armenia. Nagorno-Karabakh is an ethnic Armenian area, primarily ethnically Armenian. Now, there are places within Nagorno-Karabakh that are very important culturally to Azerbaijanis. I'm thinking of Shusha, but it's primarily an ethnic Armenian enclave. The Soviets, because they were Bolsheviks, because they were communists, were class-focused, not ethnically-focused anyway. So they just sort of, when they first came in, they said, whatever, people can live wherever. We're all going to get rid of state borders anyway because we're a great proletarian state. So they didn't particularly care, but they first stuck it with Armenia. Then Stalin came along and said, no, the border makes more sense here. And he gave it to Azerbaijan, put it within Azerbaijan. And that's where we started with the Soviet period, that it was an Armenian, ethnic Armenian enclave within the borders of the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan. Oh, Nagorno-Karabakh, what are we going to do with you? This is literally the question that has been asked since the start of the Soviet Union, which is still driving the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia today. So, for the period of Soviet rule, things seem to go okay, or at least as well as can be expected. At least the Soviet leaders during this time were able to keep things stable enough as they looked to move 
various other priorities forward. But, as was the case with many regional disputes, once the Soviet Union began to fall apart, so did the security structure that held things together. As you said, things seemed to be quiet for much of the Soviet period, and a lot of that has to do with the oppressive regime in Moscow sort of putting a cap on everything. When Gorbachev came into power in Moscow, his policies of perestroika restructuring the economy and glasnost opening things up because he thought those two processes had to go hand in hand really sort of took the lid off a lot of disputes that had been simmering below the surface in the Soviet Union. And that's when you saw the independence movements of things like the Baltic states, the Central Asian republics, and the revival of nationalism amongst the people of the Caucasus. And what that meant in practical terms was Armenia became more independent-minded, Azerbaijanis became more independent and nationalist-minded, and the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh became more nationalist-minded and saw their relationship with Armenia as being natural and more important than being inside Azerbaijan. They wanted to be part of Armenia. I believe that they declared independence because they had a history of some sovereignty, some autonomy within Azerbaijan, and Armenia supported them. So then the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991-92. War broke out between Azerbaijan and Armenia. The Armenians supported the Nagorno-Karabakh Armenians' desire to not be a part of Azerbaijan anymore. Armenia kicked out a lot of Azeris. Um, there was some ethnic cleansing there of Azeris. On the other side, the Azeris had a vibrant and lively Armenian population within Baku, and there were pogroms conducted against them in Baku and Sungait, which is a neighborhood near Baku. There were a lot of atrocities committed against the populations on both sides. At the end of the 1994 war, Armenia won that war, hands down. Not only did they liberate Nagorno-Karabakh, and I put liberate in quotation marks, but they also conquered about seven territories or parts of territories, Azerbaijani territories around Nagorno-Karabakh, thus creating this sort of buffer zone and taking, I think a lot of the sources I've read have said about 15% of Azerbaijani territory. When I was the human rights officer in Baku, the State Department looked at it, the geographer looked at it and said it was more like 12%, but there you're really getting into semantics. They had a good chunk of Azerbaijan. I also want to clarify that the reason that I put in quotation marks liberated is because the internationally recognized borders of the states that came out of the Soviet Union, for Azerbaijan, that included Nagorno-Karabakh. So it was within it. So that is why I said liberated, because technically, according to international law, the states that recognized Azerbaijan recognized NK as being in Azerbaijan. And continue to recognize Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan to this day. Coming out of this war, the two sides agreed to a Russian-brokered ceasefire, but never came to a peace agreement of any sort. This meant that they continued to be in a state of war, even if active fighting was not going on, at least for a time. Here is where it is interesting to think about the relative budgets of countries to wage war and continue to fight. In 1994, the Armenian military dominated the Azerbaijani military. They lost very badly. Azerbaijan was a poor country. It did have a lot of resources. At the same time, they discovered some important gas and oil deposits. And we already knew Baku had oil. They worked on that throughout the Soviet period. But in this time, Western companies came in and helped Baku develop its oil and natural gas resources and build pipelines. And so Azerbaijan began to get a lot more money and their budgets began to increase. I think the relative poverty of the two sides and the fact that Armenia won and was just occupying its territory 
and Azerbaijan couldn't really do anything to get it back. I think that helped keep the situation calm for a while, the balance of forces. I want to jump out of the timeline a little bit here, as I think this is an important point to get to right now. One of the big questions I have always had about this conflict is why is Nagorno-Karabakh so important to both sides that they are willing to risk the lives of their soldiers for this region? Is it rich in natural resources? Is it of particular strategic military importance? What is driving this conflict that cannot be overcome? The region of Nagorno-Karabakh, I would say it is primarily just ethnicity, language, and history and culture. It's sort of like I'd served in Kosovo. My last tour in the Foreign Service overseas was in Kosovo, and that's also a little tiny area that people fight over really strongly. I mean, why does Serbia want it so badly? Because they consider it like their, their heartland. It's historically very important for them. And I think it's the same with Armenia and Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh. So it's, it's really this sort of historical, cultural, this is important to us piece of territory. Otherwise, I can't think of any particular strategic importance for it. There's a part of me that cannot understand such a connection to a region or piece of land that makes it all worth it. But how many times do we see border wars because of historical viewpoints the strange lines drawn after major conflicts, and the interests of stronger countries to keep weaker ones in a state of conflict with their neighbors to ensure control over the region. Speaking of regional actors wanting to direct the affairs of their neighbors, might that be a bit at play here? You're absolutely right that foreign players played a big role. I guess to get the context of this, you have to see sort of in your mind a mental map of what the region looks like. Armenia is landlocked. And on one border to the north, they have Georgia, which they're friendly enough with. They can trade with Georgia and cross that border with Georgia. And north of that is Russia. To the east is Azerbaijan. To the south is Azerbaijan, because there's this territory called Nachavan, which is an exclave of Azerbaijan that separates Armenia from Iran. And then you have a tiny piece of border with Armenia with Iran, and then you've got the border with Turkey. They haven't had the border open with Turkey not just because of the historic disputes between Armenia and Turkey, but more importantly, because Turkey supported Azerbaijan in the war. Turkey is a big defender of Azerbaijan. They have a close relationship. Armenia, on the other hand, had a close relationship with Russia. Russia supported Armenia. They had some troops there. Armenia is a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a Russian-led organization of former Soviet states. They're supposed to come to the defense of any country that's attacked. So Armenia has Russian support. They get most of their trade with Russia because really the only border they can go through is the one with Georgia and Russia, the tiny little piece with Iran. And I think Armenia gets along with Iran, but Azerbaijan and Turkey control the other borders. And so that's the balance of power, Russia on the one hand, Turkey on the other. For years, we had this theory about frozen conflicts and how useful they are to Russia. As long as this conflict persisted, as long as Armenia was dependent upon Russia for defense against Azerbaijan, Russia has a role in the Caucasus. And the same can be said about the conflicts in Georgia and the conflicts in Moldova, Transnistria, and earlier the conflicts in Ukraine that obviously has blown up and is not exactly the same. So Russia had an interest in maintaining this conflict frozen. They conducted negotiations. The US and France and Russia led what was called the OSCE process, the Minsk Group process, and tried to conduct negotiations between the two sides. And that is sort of where we stood until about 2020. So September of 2020 rolls around and you guessed it, 
because you have such a great memory and stay up to date on international issues, Azerbaijan goes on the offensive to recapture some of the regions they had lost in the 1994 war. Over the course of 44 days of intense fighting, low estimates of over 7,000 people killed were reported, and Azerbaijan reclaimed most or all of the lands they lost, as well as some parts of Nagorno-Karabakh. Russia was able to finally broker a ceasefire that held, well, at least for the next two years, and relations between the two countries were frozen in conflict. Importantly, it's not a peace treaty. They just agreed to stop killing each other, primarily because Russia and Turkey said, okay, stop killing each other. And so they agreed to that, but none of the fundamental issues have been addressed. And for Azerbaijan, the fundamental issues are they want Armenia to renounce claims on Nagorno-Karabakh. They want the demarcation of the Azerbaijani-Armenian border, because in addition to Nagorno-Karabakh, there are also these other tiny little areas where the populations bleed over, and you have little tiny enclaves on each side. They want a road and a railroad line to Nachavan, that exclave I talked about earlier. They want a connection to that. And so those are the fundamental issues they want from a peace agreement. Earlier, Armenia, when it had the um, upper hand in this conflict and was militarily stronger and had Russia behind it, it was really pushing for Nagorno-Karabakh to be completely independent and for it to have a way to you know, maintain its connections with Nagorno-Karabakh, etc., this deal held for two years, where a new round of fighting broke out in September. It is unclear of who started what and where, but it seems that Azerbaijan and Armenia were facing off against each other over their land border, rather than in territory internationally recognized as Azerbaijan, but claimed by Armenia. This is a new state in the conflict and can point to some unintended consequences from Russia's preoccupation with its war in Ukraine. And what's happening with Russia right now is Russia is very distracted. You know, it's it's losing this war in Ukraine, possibly. It's definitely not winning the war in Ukraine. It's had to pull forces. It's pulled a lot of its peacekeepers out of Nagorno-Karabakh and sent them to fight in Ukraine. It's distracted. After three days of fighting and over 300 people killed, the ceasefire brokered seems to have held. However, issues still remain unsettled between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and this conflict has the potential to flare up again if there is no peace agreement reached. However, how can either side trust the other when every ceasefire has been broken in the past, whenever the facts on the ground have changed? Yeah, I think it's a situation where the people who are coming up with the peace treaty, I mean, you've got the major issues. What happens to the people in Nagorno-Karabakh? Where does the border settle on? You know, how do you establish communications across the land? Those are the major issues, but you're right. Something that the people who come up with the peace treaty need to think about is, how do you guarantee that? How do you make it so costly for Azerbaijan, for example? It's more profitable for Azerbaijan to have peace and have this settled issue than it is for them to go to war again with Armenia. And how do you make Armenia safe being lesser militarily? How do you make them feel safe where they don't have to worry about Azerbaijan turning on them. So I think that that's something that needs to be considered. And that's where you start talking about confidence building measures and things like that. With that, is there any chance that a peace agreement can be reached and this conflict can be put to rest for good? I've read that Pashinyan, the democratically elected prime minister of Armenia, is actually made some dramatic steps towards a peace agreement here. The EU is leading negotiations. These are ongoing. 
and Pashinyan has agreed to basically renounce most of everything. He just wants to make sure that the people in Nagorno-Karabakh, the Armenians who live in Nagorno-Karabakh are protected and have some sort of voice, which is actually a pretty dramatic concession. And, I th and the reason I stress democratically elected is because this has gotten him a lot of domestic backlash. It's very difficult to make peace in this kind of conflict, especially when, you're, when you seem to be giving up more. And for decades, you've had all this territory, you've had all the advantages, and suddenly you're conceding more. But he seems to be doing the very brave thing and being willing to make those concessions. So some observers have argued that now would be a good time, you know, we're closer to the possibility of actually having a peace treaty. The EU is still working on it. I personally would like to see the US step up and do a little more. We haven't been as active recently as we were 20 years ago when I was working on this issue. So it would be great if the sides could get together and really force that. They're doing a lot of work on it, but it's a conflict that has been intractable for decades. And so there's only so much energy and resources you can commit to that when there are other conflicts around the world you're also involved in, like Iraq and Afghanistan, Ukraine. So it's a matter of prioritizing the resources that we have. But I do want to note that despite saying that, that um, I definitely, I know people who are working on this conflict and they're working very hard on it. And I think it is a positive sign that the EU is, has stepped up. Frankly speaking, it was Russia that did the last ceasefire in 2020. They were the ones who were there and who were seized with the process and stepped in and actually did something. It's reassuring to see that the EU is now doing that and leading these negotiations because I don't think it's in our best interest to just leave this to Russia to settle. But does this conflict matter to the U.S. and its allies? It seems so far away does not have a big potential to break into a broader region-wide conflict, and Russia and Turkey are supporting Armenia and Azerbaijan, respectively. Can't we just leave this to them to figure out? This region is strategically important. On the one hand, just for natural resources, and this is another thing that I perhaps should have mentioned earlier, but another reason that Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, feels emboldened right now, not just because Russia's distracted, but also because Baku has gas and they have the pipeline that gets the gas from Baku, the Caspian and Central Asia more directly into Europe. So with all the problems with Nord Stream 2 or in Nord Stream 1 and shipments of gas from Russia and embargoes on that gas, Azerbaijan is now offering itself and is, the EU has gone there to talk to them about providing gas to the European Union. So it's very important from a natural resources perspective, but also this is sort of the crossroads of the world. It's a great transportation corridor, Armenia and Azerbaijan, to get from the east to the west, to link together Asia and Europe. It lowers the cost of transportation. It's just a vitally strategic area of strategic interest. And finally, of course, there's just the moral question of, you know, if we can solve this for relatively cheap costs without having to send in troops and occupy and rebuild a state, but help bring two peoples who've been warring for years together so they stop killing each other, then there's a good moral reason for the United States to be involved in that too. In the end, it is great to know that there are opportunities for the U.S. to positively help solve global issues as long as we put priorities in the right place. Without U.S. and EU leadership on this issue, the regional players who benefit from keeping these countries in perpetual conflict will drive the future and we will see flare-ups like we did in September time and time again. If Americans begin to talk about the need for a solution here, the government will take notice. 
If you feel this is an important step for the U.S. to take, you can make your voice heard in a number of ways. Beyond speaking with your federal congressional members, you can continue to engage in conversations, click on articles, and speak out in ways that support your own values. Knowledge is power, and that power gives your voice strength. Thank you so much to Mary Glantz of the United States Institute of Peace for sharing her time and insights on this long-standing conflict, helping us to better understand the historical underpinnings that have made this such an intractable war. This has been the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We thank you for your interest in deepening your understanding of important global issues and engaging with our work. Hopefully, you will come away from this discussion with some new knowledge, and it helps to situate yourself in the world. Your support and interest is what drives our work, and we are excited to continue these great conversations. Tim Horgan is your host, producer, editor, audio tech booker, and is happy to take whatever other title you want to give him. Our theme music, as always, is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Battleground by Pawal Fezjuk. Until next time. Mm-hmm.